Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear what it is that you would say to us. And Lord, we pray as Paul admonished the Colossians that we could grow up into the body that we are, the body of your son, who is the head. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, my, my name is Chris Myers. I'm the associate rector here at St. Bart's. Uh, Jay, our rector, is gone. I was gone last week. He's gone this week. We're just kind of passing ships in the night. I don't even know where he is. And I don't think he knew where I was. So that's what summer is for, is to kind of rest and reset. So uh, just continue to pray for him and his family. He's taking some well-needed time off. Um, I have my friend Gavin Pate again here with me tonight. We went to seminary together. We were ordained together. And we worked at All Saints Dallas together, which is the church that planted us here. So we go way back, and it's great to have him with us. So if you get a chance, say hi to him and uh, give him a hard time, because that's what I would do. So um, we have been talking about the book of Colossians. And we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians for the next couple of weeks, and we're going to be looking at the letters of Paul throughout the whole summer. And to set the table for looking at this passage before us tonight, I want you to... Uh, remember what might be a dark memory for some and a happy nerdy memory for others, I want you to think about chemistry class in high school. Um, if you walk into any chemistry class in the world, it's, there's something on the wall. And that thing on the wall is the periodic table of elements. 
Does everybody remember that there's a periodic table of elements? So in in my high school, the chemistry teacher was a a real killer, and you had to memorize the atomic weights of everything on the periodic table. So that was not fun, and I don't remember any of them. But that poster on the wall told you what everything is made of, right? So imagine that you were in that high school class. It's deep into the spring. You're just trying to get out, and you walk in one day, and there's a new poster, and a completely different table of elements. All the elements have changed. Now, first you'd be frustrated you'd have to re-memorize everything, but if you thought about it for a minute, you would realize that if that poster is true, if the new poster is true, then it means what we thought everything was made of is completely different than what it's actually made of. We live in an entirely different world than we expected. And that is what Paul is talking about in this passage. He's talking about these elemental spirits, these elements that make up the world, the world as he understood it, the cosmos as he understood it. And he's setting this contrast. There's sort of two columns. One is a column in which there is philosophy and empty deceit, which is according to human tradition and according to these elements. And then there's another column, which is according to Christ, who is the fullness of God, the one who fills us. So the contrast that he sets up and that I want to use to talk about this whole passage is the fullness of God in Christ versus the empty deceit of the elements. And what Paul is saying is really there is a new periodic table of elements in Christ and that the world is a different place and it is constituted in a wholly different way than what we thought before and you've moved from one world into another world. And how has that happened? What makes that reality possible? Well, he talks about that in verses 11 and 12. So if you have your bulletins, you can flip there or your Bibles. It's on page five in the, in the bulletin. So in verse 11, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about the one who is the fullness of God, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. Last week, we had that amazing Christ hymn, which is this song about Christ's preeminence, how he is the one from whom all things come and the one to whom all things return. That there is nothing above him and that all things bow to him. That Christ, he says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. And then in verse 11, it says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The word circumcision is there a lot, so we're going to have to talk about it. So we can go ahead and feel uncomfortable right now. We all know what circumcision is, and we're going to talk about it. But the the parallel that he draws is between circumcision and baptism. And he says that baptism is a circumcision without hands. And there's two evocative images, at least two, two that I want to draw attention to. One is that this is a circumcision without hands. Now, I don't know if you've seen a circumcision or experienced one that you remember, but you have to do it with hands, right? It requires someone actually doing it. But he's saying this circumcision of baptism is without hands. What he's drawing attention to is that this baptism is not a human institution. He's drawing on this idea that there's this reality that's according to human tradition, according to these elements, and somehow circumcision got messed up, mixed up with that sort of thing. And this baptism is without human hands. It is not a human institution. It isn't according to the elements. It isn't according to human tradition. And most importantly, it is not accomplished by human power or human effort. That baptism, the circumcision without hands, 
is not accomplished by human power or human effort. Further, the language that this translation uses is that it's a putting off of the flesh, putting off of the body of the flesh. It probably wouldn't be too strong to translate it the stripping off of the flesh. And I want to use that language because Paul is not joking around (laughs) in this passage. He's saying what baptism does is it strips off the flesh. Now, let me tell you what he doesn't mean by that. So St. Bartholomew, our namesake, according to tradition, he was killed by having his skin flayed off of him, which is not a great way to go. Not my preferred way of dying, (laughs) but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about literally stripping off your physical skin. He's not talking about physical matter. Remember, again, the Christ hymn from last week. If Jesus is the creator of all things and the one to whom all creation returns, then creation is good. Material reality is good, including our bodies. Flesh is not the same thing as our bodies. It's not the thing that needs to be stripped away. Flesh is that which lives in accordance with the elements. Flesh is that which lives in that old world in accordance with it. And if I can use this very loaded word in our current political climate, it's in collusion with the elements. Flesh is all the ways that we rely on ourself, all the ways we submit to the elements of the world. Flesh is all the ways we actively and passively live as if Christ is not preeminent. It's the way we live as if all things were not created through him and for him. Flesh is all the ways that we ignore him and all the ways we try to take him and sync him up with the world instead of syncing the world up with him. Jesus is the definitive one, the preeminent one, who has shown that all these powers, all these elements are empty. That's what Paul says. He says he puts them to open shame. He triumphs over them. He puts them to open shame. The elements used to organize the world have changed. There is a new periodic table in Christ. And what Paul is saying in in effect is stop organizing your life and reality according to the old table, according to the flesh. That needs to be stripped off. That is what living in the flesh is. It's living in accordance with the elements. We have to strip that off. And that's an empty way of living and Christ is the full way of living Christ parades in victory and drags these elements, the powers behind him, shaming them, Paul says, and showing them to be fraud, frauds. And that might be a provocative image to us, but it certainly was a deeply provocative image to the Colossians because he's using this idea of a Roman triumph parade and saying, actually, that's what Jesus does. He drags his enemies behind them, him, and shows that they're frauds and that they're empty and that they have no real power. So it's through baptism that we participate in that victory. In that reality, we are baptized into that reality, immersed into the reality that Jesus has remade the world in his death, his burial, his resurrection. We are joined to this victory because we follow Jesus to the cross, into the grave, and come out with him on the other side. And that's what baptism shows us. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk and newness of life. Or to talk about it in another way, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Colossians chapter one. Paul prays for the Colossians and one of the things that he prays for them is that they would remember that they've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. 
And I mentioned that that's a picture of the Exodus, being the people of God being delivered from Israel into the promised land. And what did they cross to go out into the wilderness, to go into the promised land, but the Red Sea? And the Red Sea is a boundary, and baptism is a crossing of one boundary, crossing of one realm into another. But you don't just get to step in. You have to go through the water. And the things that could kill you have to be drowned in the water. So for the, Egyptian, for the Israelites, that was the Egyptians. Their chariots, their horses, they were drowned in the water. But what Paul is saying is our enemies are drowned in baptismal waters. And our enemy, our great enemy, is our flesh. Because without the flesh, the world and the elements and the powers and the principalities would have nothing to hook onto in us. They would have nothing to offer us. Because our flesh desires to work with them, alongside with them, to believe the promises of these empty things. So Israel fleed from Egypt. They are, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, baptized into Moses by going through the Red Sea as we are baptized into Christ, going through our own Red Sea, which is baptism. And Paul says, in effect, you live somewhere else now. You used to live over here. Now you live over here because you've crossed this boundary, this boundary line of water. And when you came through that water, everything that could kill you was drowned in that water. So we live somewhere else now. There is a new way of doing things, new ways of being, new things to do, new things not to do. And learning to live in a new country is a difficult task, if anybody has ever done that before, right? You have to learn maybe a new language, new customs, new ways of being. So it takes time, and it feels like that old place is still clinging to us. But we're learning to live in a new place as baptized people. Paul points throughout the whole letter is that we didn't get to that new country by our own effort. We didn't get there by our spiritual practices, by what he talks about here, our asceticism, our worship of angels, all these things that he lists in the later verses of this passage. We didn't get to this new realm, this new domain, this new country by our own efforts. We were delivered there. We were transferred there. We passed through the waters and we died and we were resurrected just as Jesus was. And we have to remember this. We have to call it to mind. We have to bring it before us over and over and over again. And it's one reason that when we do baptisms here, that part of the liturgy is that we're, we're all renewing our baptisms together, right? And part of that renewal is this, what we call the threefold renunciation. That when we renew our baptismal vows, we say, I renounce anew again the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's the nice three-word summary about all the stuff that Paul's talking about here. The powers, the authorities, the elements, the flesh. All of that we have to renounce. And we have to remember that those things were drowned in the baptismal waters. In the ancient church, oftentimes those being baptized would take off all their clothes. They would literally strip in order to be reminded that something else was being stripped from them when they went down into the water. Because when they went into the water, what they were clothed in is Christ himself, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. I was reading uh, one scholar who was talking about baptismal art, some of the earliest baptismal art, and that sometimes it's very difficult to tell whether the person being baptized is Jesus or a Christian. And I think, exactly. That's great because we are united to Christ. 
And that's what Paul is trying to drive home over and over and over and over again to the Colossians is that we're in him. So his death, his burial, resurrection becomes our death, our burial, our resurrection. His work of canceling sins becomes our cancellations of sins. His victory over the authorities and powers becomes our victory over the authorities and powers. I love this image of stripping off the robe, going into the water, being clothed in Christ, and then many times they would come out and they'd be clothed in white. The picture of purity, of being washed and being cleansed. And we have that too. You know, we have christening dresses that are usually just the most bright white because it's a picture of the cleansing the water brings to us. The other thing about the stripping off is that it's very democratic in the true sense of the word, that we're all the same, right? We all need to be stripped of something. (laughs) It's different things for different people. The flesh kind of works for different people in different way, but we all need to be stripped. And that nakedness is not enough in itself. We have to go further. We have to go down into the waters because the flesh is not our bodies. We need a circumcision without hands. Circumcision takes a little bit, Baptism takes everything, if you get my drift. There is a new world, and the question is, in this new world, who's in charge? Are the powers still in charge, or is Christ still in charge? And to drive the point home, Paul points us back to the cross. He says, you, you were dead. We certainly weren't in charge. You were dead, and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Those things die with Jesus on the cross. And then this evocative, provocative image, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus is in charge because he's put those enemies to death. He's put them to shame. Later on, in a verse that's further from our reading, Paul will refer to the elements again. And he says, if with Christ you died to the elements of the world, why, as if you were alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. There was something going on in the church We don't know exactly what it was, but it had something to do with if I do these practices, if I worship angels, if it's some of the things that he points to here, if I keep the right holidays, if I do them in the right way. And Paul is saying, no, that's an old way of thinking. That's the elemental way of thinking. That's the fleshly way of thinking. And Paul is certainly not saying that there are not standards to Christian living. And we'll get into that next week in Colossians 3. He's very explicit. He uses again this language of putting on and putting off. And he says we need to put on Christ. And when we put on Christ, we behave in this way. We're loving, we're humble, we're this, we're that. So Paul is certainly not saying that they're not standards of Christian living. But what he is saying is that this old way of doing things, these human attempts to access the divine by our own efforts are dead. They're empty. And you don't want to go to the empty on something that's empty, you want to go with the fullness. Jesus is the fullness and he is the one who fills us. So where does this leave us? 
right? This is all maybe a nice, nice things to say or maybe it's up here and kind of confusing. So I wanna talk about ways to sort of think about what does it mean to live in this new world when we clearly still kind of have one foot in the other world too. <laughs> if the world has been remade, it hasn't been completely remade. And Jesus' victory, though definitive, is not completely final yet. We wait for the fullness of that victory. And this has been a question that has perplexed Christians for ages. And one way that it showed up early on is people wondered whether or not it was even possible to sin after you baptized, which is a really good question. Because if we take a certain understanding of what Paul is saying here, how does that even work? So people would delay getting baptized until the end of their lives because of that dynamic. They were, they were thinking through this question. If the powers have been defeated, how do we live in this world now where it doesn't seem like the powers have been defeated? And one of the greatest minds of the church devoted a very big book to this question called The City of God by St. Augustine. And that was written in a time when the world was falling apart. Rome was crashing all around and the Christians were being blamed for it. And Augustine writes this apology, this argument that gives us not just a vision of what happened in Rome, but sort of a vision of history. And he talks about the difference between the city of God and the city of man. The country that we have been transferred into, but this country that we still have to live in. See, the difference between going from Egypt to the promised land is that if you want to go back to Egypt, it's going to take a while. But the reality of the city of God and city of man is that they're like this. They overlap. The city of God is where love is rightly ordered and directed to God. The city of man is where love is disordered and directed to anything but God. And they're both places of desire. They're both places of love and they overlap. Again, to traverse the distance between the two is not a journey of a thousand miles. It's, they're just always here. And so what we need is discernment, we need the spirit, and we need the community of Christ. We need each other to help us. We need to remember our baptisms. We need to continually renounce those things that would keep us down in the bottom of the water and to keep us from being raised up into new life. And when I think about Augustine and I think about the city of God and I think about a moment in history where things are sort of crumbling, I'm not saying that we're living through the fall of Rome, but we are living at an inflection point in history where things are being shaken. And I don't see that as a cause for fear. I don't see that as a cause for worry, even though I do worry about it sometimes. I see it as an opportunity because what Augustine talks about and what Paul talks about is not just what happened, it's what happens. The things we put our trust in, the elements by which we rank and organize and align our lives are put to open shame again and again. Things play out, things are shaken. This is the way that the book of Hebrews puts it. He com compares and contrasts Mount Zion with Mount Sinai. And he concludes that everything that can be shaken will be shaken, but we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So I think we live in a moment of shaking. Is it the same thing as the fall of Rome? Probably not. But it is a shaking. Everything that we put our trust in is sort of being questioned. The institutions that we put our trust in, the people that we trust in, the corporations that we put our trust in, we don't really want to trust them. 
they're not doing a great job. We don't want to trust them because they're being shaken. So we have an opportunity. And when things are getting shaken and falling down on Loralis, we need to be in the midst of that. We're not in the midst of it to gloat. We're not in the midst of it to mock. We're not in the midst of it to say, I told you so. But we are called to be in the midst of it to point to the one who is fullness. We say, hey, that's empty. I've tried it. It's empty. Here's fullness. Here's the desire of the nations. Here's the preeminent one. We are to be in that space where everything is shaken, when the city of man is shaken, to be witnesses to a kingdom of hope and peace. In short, the city of God itself. In Psalm 20, the psalmist says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So we might put it this way. On a personal level, some put hope in relationships, some put hope in careers, some put hope in connections, some put hope in things, some trust in their degrees, some trust in their connections and affiliations, some trust in their zip code, some trust in their status, some trust in their bank balance, some trust in their own power, but we trust in the Lord. On a larger level, some trust in politics, some trust in institutions, some trust in corporations, but these things are being put to open shame. These things turn out to be empty in the end. Even when they are good, they are not the fullness. That's important. We, we can have good institutions. And sometimes we do when we experience them. But even when they're good, they're not the fullness. They're not Christ. And it has to be aligned under him. And so they are in comparison to him who is the fullness and the, the one to whom all things return, empty. And that's our opportunity is to stand in the midst of the things that are being shaken and say, hey, there's fullness. And that is Christ who is the preeminent one. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this ancient letter that by the mystery of your spirit can speak to us across time and space, across cultures. And I pray that in spite of, or maybe hopefully because of my words, Lord, that you would work in our hearts. And that as Jesus taught us to pray, that we would be those who ask for good gifts from our Father, particularly that we'd be asked to be full of your spirit so that we can go and bear witness to the city of God. And it is in the name of our Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen.